You're going to love this. Just love it. Yes, you will. Listen to the man. He knows what he's talking about. Stuck in the Middle with you from Pacifica Radio's KPFK in Los Angeles. This is your broadcast. As heard on 90.7 FM in LA. 91.7 FM KYAQ on the beautiful Oregon Central Coast. 93 FM WLRI in lovely Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And of course, coast to coast and around the globe on KPFK.org. On the Stitcher app, on the TuneIn app, on iTunes, streaming on the Progressive Voices channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio or Not, Radio Free Brooklyn, other fine affiliates in parts unknown, and of course, Radio Sputnik, five days a week. This is your broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger. Journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me, if not you, from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us for another action-packed, thrilling adventure. Uh, we've got uh, we've got a, a congressman. I almost said a federal congressman coming up. There's only one kind of congressman, federal. Uh, congressman Ted Lieu will be joining us uh, very, very momentarily, so stand by for that. I am joined here in studio, as ever, by Desi Doyen. Hi, Des. Hey. Our producer and uh, my co-host on the Green News Report. And what I'm going to talk with uh, Ted Lieu about uh, is very much up your alley, Desi yes. Doyen. This is a question that we have been trying to get at now for several weeks, several months, concerning... Not just Exxon and when they knew, what they knew, and when they knew it about uh, climate change and global warming, but what can be done about it now that we know what they knew and when they knew it. And uh, now that it appears they, uh, I don't want to say lied, I will say obfuscated all of their own science, their very own science, and... um, and how that uh, really echoes what happened in the tobacco industry and what happened, frankly, to the tobacco industry when they eventually were held accountable with a uh, with a, a RICO trial. I'll get to that in a moment. We'll also have uh, we got a bunch of new polling news following last week's Democratic debate. Uh, did Hillary really manage uh, to break things up uh, a little bit uh, to break up the uh, uh the bleeding to her campaign, her bleeding against uh, uh, in the polls against Bernie Sanders, at least uh, as much as the uh, mainstream corporate media had claimed right after the debate finished. Well, we've got a number of polls now that are out uh, that are, have been taken uh, since last week's Democratic debate. And, uh, well, we will get to them shortly and uh, see if, in fact, they tell us anything about the trajectory of this contest. And, of course, the trajectory of the contest 
doesn't actually mean much when it comes to pre-election polls if people are not allowed to vote for whoever the hell they want. So we've got a bunch of voting news that has been piling up here that I've been trying to get to, including this update on what's going on in Alabama, where the state is shutting down driver's license offices in a majority of African-American counties right after having enacted a law that requires photo ID to cast a vote in Alabama. Also, Jeb Bush and his uh, desperate campaign continues. He's now willing to say anything to get back into the GOP fold somehow, somehow against Donald Trump, who is now getting, uh, by the way, the highest poll rating so far of his uh, insane, bizarre campaign. Uh, But uh, while he's willing to say anything and uh, including saying that he stands by his brother having, quote, kept us safe. That was a lie that we had. We had to talk about it again last week because Jeb uh, made the false assertion yet again that George W. Bush kept us safe. So uh, he was, of course, egged on by Donald Trump. So Jeb had to answer. So we had to come in and remind everyone that Jeb is lying. George W. Bush didn't keep us safe. But uh, so he's standing by his brother on that. But he has thrown his brother under the bus, seemingly on voting rights and on the Voting Rights Act. I've been trying to get to this story. I will try again today. I'm hoping we can finally get to it. Also, uh, we now have more information on the supposed, supposed voter fraud prosecutions that Kansas Secretary of State Chris Kobach is now filing. That would be the voter fraud fraudster Chris Kobach, who ran on who ran for secretary of state on stopping what he claimed was an epidemic of voter fraud. But oddly enough, he's had trouble finding any of it since he's come to office. And uh, this is still the same Chris Kobach, who is now now the only secretary of state in the entire country who has been granted the power of prosecution. That's right. He now has the ability to directly prosecute All of these uh, terrible uh, vote fraudsters out there. And he actually is now bringing some prosecutions. Are they what he promised? We'll find out. Uh, All of that and more a bit later on the broadcast today. Uh, But first, uh, we have been talking for a, a number of weeks now, actually going on a number of months, frankly, about what Exxon knew and when they knew it and if they should be held accountable for what they knew and what they actually did about it. We had uh, on this program, I think a week or two ago, we had Neela Banerjee of Inside Climate News on their blockbuster report showing uh, you know, th- that looked at um Years of inside documentation from Exxon starting as early as 1977, finding that their scientists knew full well about the dangers of climate change, of global warming, the dangers of continuing to burn their product, to use their product uh, in the way that it was designed. And they uh, said that this was would be potentially catastrophic for the planet. This was Scientists inside Exxon documented uh, in this report by Inside Climate News. And we had Neela Banerjee. She was uh, one of the uh, the co-authors of that blockbuster report to talk about this. And one of the points that she made at the time 
was because uh, I had asked her about MSNBC and the fact that even MSNBC at the time had not been covering this issue. Now, ExxonMobil is a big sponsor for uh, for MSNBC, and this was not just about climate change and global warming and burning carbon. Uh, this was, you know, very specifically about what Exxon knew and when they knew it. She told me at the time that it was even worse than that, that, in fact, uh, the New York Times, AP, Washington Post had not covered this rather remarkable story either. Now, since we spoke with uh, Neela ba Banerjee, the L.A. Times has uh, indeed come out with their own report. That's uh, some of the good news here. Uh, the bad news is that what they found uh, confirmed inside climate news and confirmed the fact that not only did Exxon know about climate change years ago, not only did they turn uh, in the late 80s to begin funding, instead of funding climate science, they began funding climate science denial organizations, but they also internally uh, used this scientific data to start planning, uh, well, to start planning to improve their own profits by drilling uh, in the Arctic. They looked at it. They said, hey, the Arctic is melting. This opens up great opportunities for us to continue this cycle. So there was a public face of what they were telling the public uh, concerning climate change and helping to fund deniers. And then there was the truth of their own science, which they were helping to obscure. Now, um, the good news is, after the L.A. Times piece, even MSNBC got into the uh, got into the matter here and ran their own report. Chris Hayes ran his own report uh, just late last week. I don't believe that nicotine or our products are addictive. I believe nicotine is not addictive. I believe that nicotine is not addictive. I believe that nicotine is not addictive. And I, too, believe that nicotine is not addictive. We now know, of course, those gentlemen were lying. A series of investigations and lawsuits later revealed that big tobacco knew full well. Cigarettes were not only addictive, but, but massively harmful to human health. And that was a scandal. Not just that their product was dangerous, but that they knew it was dangerous and addictive and lied about it for decades. It's why the tobacco companies have had to pay billions of dollars in settlements and why, in 2006, they were found guilty of civil fraud and racketeering for deceiving the public to maintain profits. Now, some bombshell new reporting suggests a possible parallel in the fossil fuel industry. Since the mid-90s, ExxonMobil has spent millions of dollars to spread denial and doubt about man-made climate change. In 1997, then-Chairman Lee Raymond campaigned fiercely against the Kyoto Protocol, telling a conference in Beijing the case for so-called global warming is far from airtight. There's a lot we really don't know about how climate will change in the 21st century and beyond. But recent reports by the LA Times and the Pulitzer Prize-winning Inside Climate News document how Exxon's own scientists were researching and drawing conclusions about climate change as far back as 1977. One of them reportedly informed the company's management committee, quote, there is general scientific agreement that the most likely manner in which mankind is influencing the global climate is through carbon dioxide release from the burning of fossil fuels. Then, towards the end of the 1980s, Inside Climate News reports, Exxon curtailed its carbon dioxide research. But even after that, in the early 90s, researchers and engineers at Exxon and a subsidiary were still incorporating climate projection models into their planning for Arctic operations, according to the Lake Times. In response, two California congressmen have now written a letter to Attorney General Loretta Lynch 
asking her to open the same kind of investigation into ExxonMobil the government pursued against Big Tobacco. So indeed, uh, MSNBC did cover it. That's the good news. And indeed, they did compare uh, what went on with Exxon to what went on with Big Tobacco and that lawsuit that was brought against him. So uh, as you heard Chris Hayes on MSNBC, they're saying that uh, the revelations that Exxon knew have now prompted two California congressmen to push for an investigation of Exxon and the fossil fuel industry, similar to the investigation that led to the successful prosecution of the tobacco industry on conspiracy and corruption charges. That prosecution resulted in the largest civil racketeering lawsuit in history. Late last week, Congressman Ted Lieu and Mark DeSaulnier, both of California, both Democrats, wrote that letter to Attorney General Loretta Lynch asking the DOJ to open an investigation into what Exxon and the fossil fuel industry knew when they knew it and whether their campaign to deceive the public rises to the level of prosecution. Joining us now to discuss all of this is Congressman Ted Lieu, a longtime California state legislator, now a first-term U.S. congressman representing the 33rd District, formerly uh, Henry Waxman's old seat. He also uh, holds the rank of lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Air Force Reserves, where he served on active duty for four years as a member of the JAG Corps, as both a military prosecutor and advisor to commanders. Congressman Liu, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Thank you. My honor to be on your show. Uh, great to have you here. Okay, you compared uh, what Exxon, now ExxonMobil, did in obscuring their own science to what the tobacco companies did for decades and that they eventually faced RICO prosecution for. How do you find those two cases similar? Because I've been trying to ask now, for, actually for months since this first began to reveal itself, you know, trying to figure out how the cases of the big tobacco industry and big oil are similar. How do you see them similar here? Uh, I believe that parallels are very similar. Uh, Congressman Mark Desaunier and I, we wrote this letter in our capacity as members of the House Oversight Committee. And uh, the committee has, in the past, held hearings on private sector companies when they've done bad things. And in this case, you see that Exxon scientists knew for decades that fossil fuels were causing climate change and global warming. And the company, rather than really champion this science, uh, at some point they, in fact, shut it down, and their executives started funding climate deniers, and their top executives started to obscure issues related to global warming and climate change. But it's even worse than that. Then the company took the science, and the LA Times investigation revealed that they actually acted on it to try to uh, take advantage of the melting ice in the Arctic so that they can you know, have easier ways to access oil. Mm -hmm. And to me, that's even worse than what happened with tobacco companies. In this case, they were actually using what they knew for profit at the same time uh, denying what was happening. Well, the tobacco companies knew that their products uh, directly killed people, and they didn't tell the, t uh, the the truth about the science that they had. And now Exxon, in this case, had concerns that the use of their product might eventually harm the planet in potentially catastrophic ways, as their internal documents showed. But is that the same as you see it, as knowing that a product uh, results in the direct death of the customers that use it? That's what we had with big tobacco. Is, isn't the connection here 
a bit more tenuous when it comes to, you know, the burning of fossil fuels and uh, uh, maybe death and destruction, but, you know, decades down the road? I don't think the science of tobacco is that if you smoke a cigarette, you will definitely die of lung cancer. Certainly, it is an influencer, mm -hmm. and it increases your chances of lung cancer or, or other cancers. And that's the same with the burning of fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. um, the parallels, I think, are very similar. Mm -hmm. um, you can't really say in both cases there is uh, a massive direct link, but you can certainly say both the burning of fossil fuels and tobacco products do tend to cause harm. And that was what Exxon had been obscuring uh, for decades. Now, Congressman, I suspect I know the answer to this, but I'd, I'd like to get your thoughts on this. You, you said you mentioned you served on the Oversight Committee, uh, and that was the, the committee that uh, Henry Waxman, who you have, who, whose chair you now occupy, that was the uh, uh, committee that he was uh, chairman of for so many years. Now it's, of course, run by Republicans, uh, pretty much all of whom seem to be climate change deniers at this point. Is there any chance that oversight, the Oversight Committee, will be able to hold hearings on any of this, or is that completely controlled by Republicans and Democrats actually have no say on, on so something like that? Democrats do have a say, but you're right. Ultimately, the decision will be made by the Republican chairman. I do plan to ask for a hearing uh, from uh, the majority who control the Oversight Committee. And you never know what they may think of this, because this isn't exactly the same as having a hearing on global warming. What it's saying is, hey, here's a company that has scientists that were working on an issue that they confirmed and they believed uh, was mm -hmm. uh, causing global warming, and then they were denying it. So it's really more about a company knowing something and then telling falsehoods about it. And that's sort of a different issue that even Republicans should be able to rally uh, against. Boy, well, I, I, I'm dubious of that, Congressman, but boy, that would be great to see. I do know that, you know, back uh, during the Bush era, uh, when Republicans controlled the Judiciary Committee, for example, that the Judiciary Committee Democrats, headed up by John Conyers, held their own separate meetings. I don't know if that is something that uh, that Democrats would be able to do on the Oversight Committee if the Republicans don't play along. But, well, in any event, I hope it's something you will consider. Uh, could you explain to me, I know that uh, you served as a military prosecutor. You ran for attorney general out here uh, in California back in 2010, so hopefully you can help me uh, as a layman understand uh, some of these legal issues. What is a RICO case specifically, uh, and how were the tobacco companies, as you understand it, how were they held accountable under RICO, and, and, and how would that same thing apply here? Uh, so it is a, a very expansive law that federal prosecutors mm -hmm. have used uh, for a variety of different crimes. Uh, but certainly in the case of tobacco, it's having knowledge that your product uh, had a tendency to cause harm in people and then denying that that was the case and affirmatively selling your product uh, in the face uh, of that knowledge. Um, it's a conspiracy statute. Um, and one of the issues in there uh, was that, I mean, keep in mind, the prosecution happened quite a while later mm -hmm. than uh, 
the actual science out of the hearing, because people knew for decades, at least the majority of scientists, did, that tobacco was harming people. And the reason is because there's a tolling provision in the RICO statute that says the statute of limitations runs when you find out about the bad things that a company was doing. Uh-huh. So in this case, even though Exxon scientists, you know, in the 1970s and 80s had confirmed global warming was happening and confirmed that the burning of fossil fuels was helping to cause it, the fact that we didn't have these investigations from Inside Climate News and LA Times until now, uh, to me, would toll the statute of limitations so that the Department of Justice could still bring a prosecution because we really didn't know about this. It uh-huh. took you know, two media investigations to unearth the truth of what happened. Do, do companies, uh, obviously, I think companies should tell the truth. ExxonMobil will say, oh, we didn't lie about it. Uh, we, we, you know, we, we just kept it to ourselves. Uh, do they have an obligation to share their science publicly? I mean, if they didn't come out and lie directly, and instead they funded people who, you know, organizations who would lie on their behalf, these uh, denialist organizations, but do they have to tell the truth about what they know? Do they have to share their science publicly? Well, see, it wasn't just that Exxon remained silent and mm-hmm. didn't share. They took affirmative steps uh, to campaign against uh, the science of climate change. They funded organizations uh, that uh, obscured the science behind climate change. Uh, Their top executives would make statements uh, to say that, you know, climate change either isn't happening or these are just models that we don't know much about and things are very uncertain. They were taking affirmative steps both in what they said, who they funded, and actions they took. Uh, to push back against climate change science. Uh-huh. So I think the different situation here, it, it's not as if the, the oil companies simply remain silent in the face of all of this. They took affirmative actions to deny climate change. Um, and keep in mind, they internally took actions to take advantage of global warming, right? That's the LA right. Times yeah. investigation revealed. So. This is beyond hypocrisy. I'm not even sure what to call it. Um, but it's not just they were, you know, uh, having knowledge and saying something different. They were, in fact, taking affirmative actions to rack up their profits. Right. While at the same time denying that, you know, climate change was happening. Well, they, they, they will say, I think, they weren't denying it. They were funding groups who, who were denying it. I, I don't know. Do, do we have them on record, actually, ExxonMobil themselves or their CEO saying this is not happening, as far as you know? So what you do have is, right, that's true. You have them funding organizations. You have them opposing Mm -hmm. legislation uh, that sought uh, to mitigate climate change. You have them opposing the Kyoto Protocol, which uh, would have helped reduce climate change. You have their executives saying that we don't really know uh, if these models are correct. We we know there's a lot of uncertainty. Uh, So they are... uh, actually obscuring what the science uh, is. If if these, and that's the question, is obscuring the science the same as lying about the science? I guess that's something that uh, uh, Loretta Lynch needs to look into as she investigates this. You, you write to her in, in, your, uh, in your letter that if these allegations are true, then Exxon's actions were immoral. We request the DOJ investigate whether ExxonMobil's actions were also illegal. That letter is signed by you and uh, Congressman Mark DeSaulnier, another California Democrat. Are there any other members on board yet? And have you discussed the, the matter with 
uh, with Sheldon Whitehouse, who seemed to make a similar correlation between big oil and and big tobacco earlier this year, I think in uh, uh, May of 2015. So this all sort of happened while uh, the House of Representatives was uh, basically on recess. And so um, I knew Mark from before because we served together in the legislature, so we did this letter. But when we go back in this session, um, I will uh, see how many other members of Congress we can get on board Mm -hmm. uh, in pushing this issue. I'm glad that, you know, at least two presidential candidates have said that this is worth looking into, uh, Bernie Sanders and, and Martin O'Malley. Um, and I know that Sheldon Whitehouse uh, has exactly, as you said, made this argument in the past. So I think it's gaining momentum. Um, and that's why we're asking the DOJ to investigate, right? I don't actually know, mm-hmm. right, all the I haven't right, visibly seen these documents. I am in part relying on two media investigations. Um, so that's why I want the DOJ to actually go in and do an investigation to see exactly what did Exxon know, what they said, who they funded. Um, but, you know, keep in mind that it is not a secret, right, that uh, oil company and big o- oil companies and big oil were opposing uh, the science of climate change. I don't think they would deny, deny that. Mm-hmm. Now they acknowledge, thank goodness, that climate change is happening. But if you look over our history, they were one of the first denial, deniers of climate change. I've got uh, two more questions. I appreciate your time. I've got two quick questions here I want to make sure that we hit. Uh, one, in in California, as you were a longtime legislator out here, obviously, before uh, moving to Congress, is do you know, is there any action that California can take on its own if if not the DOJ? Have you been in touch with uh, State Attorney General uh, Kamala Harris on this issue that you know, is there something that doesn't require, uh, you know, either a broken Congress or a huge uh, Department of Justice to be able to move something that California can do on its own? Uh, so that's a great question. I don't know the legal answer to that. Uh, but keep in mind that the Department of Justice at their federal level uh, is terrific. Uh, it is uh, under the Obama administration, and they have been terrific on climate change issues. I believe this issue is really right up their alley. I think it's something they would be interested in. And at the very least, I think an investigation is warranted into you know what Exxon knew, when they knew it, and what they said about it. Excellent. Finally, uh, last year, I believe it was la- yeah, last year when in 2014, when you were still a state senator out here in California, you sponsored Senate Bill 1272. That became Prop 49 uh, on the ballot, or at least it would have been on the ballot after it was adopted by the uh, legislature and and Governor Brown out here, that would have allowed California voters to ring in on whether they thought Citizens United should be overturned and whether they thought corporations were people, etc. The state Supreme Court struck that proposition from the ballot last year, saying that it was inappropriate on the ballot because it was a merely allowed the citizenry to offer an advisory position to legis- to the legislature. They said that uh, propositions, you know, have to be more than simply advisory opinions uh, from the voters. You called the ruling bizarre and very activist. Those are quotes at the time. The uh, the state Supreme Court's ruling bizarre and very activist. Uh, but you felt confident that the measure after a full uh, trial on this issue, would be allowed on the ballot in 2016, if not 2014. 
Do you still feel that that will be the case? Will uh, California voters get the right to uh, to express their opinion to the legislator uh, legislature on what they think of uh, of Citizens United? Uh, I am very hopeful because when the Supreme Court took it off the ballot last year, they actually didn't have oral argument or a full briefing on the issue. They uh, weren't sure if this is something that could be on a ballot. Now that they've had a full briefing and heard oral argument a few weeks ago, and then based on sort of the comments from some of the justices, I uh, am very hopeful that they will actually um, uphold the ability to have this law and this ballot measure on a ballot, because there is nothing in the California Constitution or the federal Constitution that says legislatures can't do this. There is just nothing uh, in either document. There's no provision uh-huh. that says the legislature cannot do this. And the way the constitutions are, are set up, the legislature can essentially pass any law as long as it's not unconstitutional. A- any and idea, that's what we did. Any idea when we expect that decision from the state Supreme Court? And, and if they uh, decide in, in your favor here, does that mean that this Proposition uh, 49 will, in fact, be added to the next uh, statewide election in California? I, I don't know when they will decide, but my understanding is their intent is that they will decide uh, to give enough time so that it would appear on next year's ballot. Well, that's some good news. Uh, I guess a, a fair amount of good news in our conversation, uh, Congressman. Congressman Ted Liu of uh, California's uh, great 33rd District. You can get more information on him at Liu, that's L-I-E-U dot house dot gov, or, of course, at his own website, www.tedliu.com. Dot com. Great talking to you, Congressman. Hope you'll uh, join us again soon on the broadcast. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Thank you, sir. You know, I mentioned um, I mentioned Congressman uh, Whitehouse, Sheldon Whitehouse, not Congressman, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, and that he had been on this very early on. And in fact, I think we have Desi. Uh, do we have some of the uh, audio from May? From Sheldon Whitehouse actually uh, uh, talking about this, actually drawing the line uh, between big, uh, big oil and big tobacco. I think, uh, yeah, this is a floor speech back from May of 2015. He's been trying to get people to wake up. He's is he still giving his uh, his his time to wake up speeches on climate change that he's been yes, giving for so many months? Yes, every week he gives right? a a speech called "Time to Wake Up," which talks about a different aspect of the climate challenge and how Congress needs to get on uh, get get to start taking action on it. So this is the excerpt from when he spoke on this back in May. In 1998, as the Clinton administration was building support for international climate action under the Kyoto Protocol, another group was up to something else. This group was the fossil fuel industry, its trade associations, and the conservative policy institutes that often do the industry's dirty work with clean faces. They met at the Washington office of the American Petroleum Institute. Their plan to organize a scheme to create doubt about climate change and to undermine public support for American participation in the Kyoto Agreement. A memo from that meeting leaked to the New York Times. The memo documented the polluters' plans for a multi-million dollar public relations campaign to undermine climate science. What was the project's goal? To ensure that, and I'll quote the memo here, a majority of the American public, including industry leadership, 
recognizes that significant uncertainties exist in climate science and therefore raises questions among those, e.g. Congress, who chart the future U.S. course on global climate change. If anything, the fossil fuel industry's climate denial scheme has grown even bigger and more complex than big tobaccos. That was Senator Sheldon Whitehouse back in May of 2015, before all of these other documents now have come out from inside uh, uh, Climate News and L.A. Times uh, about exactly what Exxon knew and when they knew it. I would say these guys are busted at this point. Uh, Now let's see how long it takes the wheels of justice to start rolling. All right, much more Bradcast straight ahead. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Don't touch that dial. Hello, this is Michael Mann, climate scientist and author of The Hockey Stick and the Climate Wars, and you are listening to The Bradcast. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from The Green News Report and The Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence. Why? Because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. The heat is on, finally. The heat is on ExxonMobil, as we talked about in our last segment. And the heat is on in the uh, in the presidential contest. Man, this is getting fun. All right, uh, just, to, just to set where we are at this point, uh, amongst great campaigns in American presidential history, I thought the 2008 campaign, I thought we would never see a more exciting race than we saw between Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama back in 2008. It went on forever. It was knocked down, drag out, uh, substance filled, went on for months and months throughout the primary process, even to the point where out here in California, which has a really, really late uh, primary we actually, you know, got to have a say in this race out here in California back in 2008. Uh, I think we went for Obama, if I recall. Uh, the state of California did. Uh, so that was a great campaign, the likes of which I thought we would never, ever see again. And then came to 2012. And the unbelievable GOP campaign circus in 2012 Something I thought we would never see anything like again either. The Republican Party knew that they were embarrassed by it. They didn't want to see anything by it. So they changed all the rules this year to try to avoid it. How'd that work out for you, Republicans? Uh, remember back in 2012, Michelle Bachman. Uh, all, all, everybody took a turn as a front runner. Michelle Bachman. Herman Cain was the front runner. 999. Newt Gingrich. Newt Gingrich seemed inevitable for a while, at least according to Newt Gingrich. Remember his promise to lower gas prices to $2.50? Well, thanks to President Gingrich, uh, I think gas is uh, now uh, the national average is well below that. 
but remember February 2012, I looked this up. Uh, he said, Newt Gingrich said, if you would like to pay $2.50 a gallon, Newt Gingrich will be your candidate. If you want $10 a gallon gasoline, Barack Obama should be your candidate. Uh, it's almost as if they uh, lie in these campaigns and make things up to scare the American public. In any event, uh, 2016 may outdo both 20, 2008 and 2012, if only because we have an even crazier campaign uh, on the uh, Republican side, as you may have noticed. And now what could be shaping up as a very real contest on the Democratic side frankly, with even far greater consequences than the uh, 2008 race between Hillary and Obama. Uh, so we, we may have both 2008 and 2012 all wrapped up into 2016. We will see. Hillary, of course, has been leading nationally uh, from, from the jump, though her margin has been her margin of, of lead. What do we call that? Her Whatever it is, her leading margin has... Uh, begun to decrease quite quickly over the uh, over the summer months with Bernie Sanders now uh, leading at least prior to the debate in uh, last week's debate CNN debate Bernie Sanders was leading in both Iowa and New Hampshire and Hillary was maintaining her national lead but of course we don't have national elections in this country so Bernie uh, ahead in both Iowa and New Hampshire, in some cases by double digits in the polls, was big news. And then last week's Democratic debate, which may have shaken things up now, frankly, in all directions. On the night of the debate, the online polls, uh, which are not nearly as reliable as, you know, actual phone calls where they randomly call people, but the online polls... Uh, and the television focus groups on both CNN and Fox showed Bernie winning huge, huge, even as the uh, mainstream uh, corporate media pundits all declared Hillary to be the victor. Well, now we actually have a few real polls that might clear things up a bit, but really they, they don't uh, clear it much at all up, unfortunately, uh, at least not yet. But there is some interesting movement. So CNN, a new CNN ORC poll finds that most people who watched the debate think that Hillary Clinton had the best performance of the night, but her strong showing has not boosted her standing in the race for the party's nomination. Essentially, she stays flat, but Bernie has risen. Clinton uh, stands at 45 percent support nationally in the race for the Democratic nomination. Bernie Sanders is behind her at 29 percent. That's a 16 point margin that the former Secretary of State still enjoys on a national level, which, again, is not how we uh, do elections in this country. Vice President Joe Biden still uh, considering a run for president uh, and uh, did not participate in the debate. He still uh, gets 18 percent nationally, according to CNN ORC poll. Uh, compared with pre-debate polling, Sanders' support is now up five points, up five points since mid-September, following that poll per, uh, uh, performance. But no other candidate showed any significant change. The poll suggests Democrats are becoming less enamored of a run from the vice president, however. Overall, 31 percent of registered Democrats say they watched all or most of the CNN Facebook debate in uh, Las Vegas on October 13. More than six in 10 Democrats who watched say Clinton did the best job. 
It's almost double the number, 35 percent, who thought Sanders had the best performance. Among those Democrats who did watch the debate, both Sanders and Biden are viewed more favorably than they are among Democratic voters generally. So if you watch the debate, if you got to learn who Bernie Sanders was, you may like him more. His uh, Sanders favorability uh, bumped from 62 percent among all Democratic voters to 84 percent among debate voters. Clinton's numbers are about the same in both groups. Again, that is nationally. um, And uh, for what it's worth, when matched against the uh, top candidates from the Republican field, Clinton, Sanders and Biden all beat Donald Trump who has been leading most of the Republican uh, polls since summer. But Biden, Joe Biden, is the only one who holds a significant lead over Ben Carson. I don't understand that at all. Uh, Trump trails uh, Clinton by five. Trump trails Sanders by nine and Biden by 10. So Sanders does better against Trump than Hillary Clinton does, no matter what you hear out there in the corporate media. Uh, But against Carson, uh, both Clinton and Sanders are generally uh, run about evenly uh, tied with Ben Carson, which is bizarre. But there you go. Uh, But uh, Biden tops Carson by eight points. But again, that's national. Let's look at the local story in uh, Suffolk University's poll, which a lot of people announced as uh, Hillary has regained the lead in uh, in New Hampshire, the Suffolk University poll in New Hampshire. Well, she did gain uh, the lead back uh, from Bernie Sanders, but not really, barely. Uh, This is a poll with a 4.4% margin of error, and she leads Bernie Sanders by just two points, 37 to 35. So where she had been trailing him, now it's essentially a dead heat in New Hampshire following the poll. So that suggests uh, the debate worked well for Hillary. Uh, Over half of those surveyed, uh, only uh, half of those surveyed, just over half, uh, had watched the debate and most thought that Clinton won. 54% to 24%, but thinking you won the uh, debate does not necessarily translate into who you will support. As we now learn from the Franklin Pierce Herald poll of New Hampshire. This is uh, just out today. They say Sanders keeps his lead over Clinton, that uh, she received no boost for her campaign, at least in New Hampshire. Uh, Sanders holds a 38-30% lead over Clinton, according to this poll, this uh, poll of the first in the nation primary state of New Hampshire, while Biden draws 19 percent in that same poll of 403 likely Democratic primary voters. That poll was conducted immediately after last week's debate. So Sanders is up by eight points with uh, Biden drawing away 19 percent from both. His lead is essentially unchanged from the 44 to 37 percent advantage uh, he held prior to the debate in the Franklin uh, Pierce Herald poll back in August. The new poll also has Sanders with an even bigger 10 point lead over Clinton if Joe Biden decides not to run. So there you go. Uh, 41% of likely voters called Clinton the winner of Las, of the Las Vegas debate. 34% gave Sanders the nod. So even though they think she won the debate, they're still throwing their support 
to Sanders, whose popularity, by the way, got a bump. He is now uh, his popularity is an all time high. Eighty three percent of likely Democratic voters said they have a favorable impression of him. Eighty three percent. That's a seven point jump since uh, the last poll in August for this group. Biden also is viewed favorably at the same 83 percent where Clinton's favorable ratings have dropped six points from August. But still, a healthy 74 percent of Democratic voters have a favorable impression of her. This contest is shaping up to be really interesting. And if anybody tells you how it's going to play out, don't listen to them. They're lying. They're making stuff up. Of course, none of it matters if voters don't get to vote. And that's what we're going to talk about in our next segment right after this break. I'm Brad Friedman. You're listening to the Bradcast. Well done. Bradcast. You know, I love the song Sweet Home Alabama, but it seems like it's never good news when we play it. It's always, it's it's never good, never good news when we play Sweet Home Alabama. That's just a word of advice. Um, welcome back, Bradcast. Did I say that? Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. All right, we were talking in the last block about uh, this amazing race that uh, could be shaping up on the Democratic side. And an insane race, which uh, is insaner by the day on the Republican side. But again, none of it matters if people can't actually vote. Vote the way they want to vote. Vote for whoever they want to vote and vote in such a way that their vote is actually counted and counted in such a way that they know that it's been counted as cast. Well, uh, the Republican Party is hard at work, unfortunately, to keep people from doing exactly that. Um We've talked about what's going on in Alabama over the last uh, several weeks. Actually, we were warning people about this before it it caught uh, the mainstream media's attention. I'm glad it finally has. But uh, in Alabama, they are shutting down, ostensibly, they claim for budget reasons, they are shutting down driver's license uh, uh, offices all over the state, but specifically in counties that have uh, more than 75% of the voters are African-American. Now, this is particularly problematic given the fact that Alabama has instituted a photo ID restriction voting law. And this just came into, uh, it was enacted for the first time. Uh, It was put into practice last year after, of course, the Supreme Court had gutted the Voting Rights Act, the most important part of the Voting Rights Act that would have kept a law like this from going into place unless Alabama, a state with a long history, you all saw Selma, right? I didn't see it, but you all saw it, uh, a state obviously with a long history of discrimination at the polling place. Uh, a, A state like Alabama would have had to get federal approval and actually would have had to prove that uh, any such laws that might affect uh, elections uh, would not be uh, uh, racially uh, disparate against black voters, African-American voters or other minorities. 
But now, with the Voting Rights Act gutted, that important provision gone, uh, you can go ahead and pass anything you want, apparently, and then, you know, let the chips fall where they may later on. In Alabama, uh, that's what they did. Uh, they just uh, basically they decided, well, we need to make budget cuts, so let's shut down the driver's license uh, offices. Even though driver's licenses are now one of the very few handfuls of IDs, of photo IDs, state-issued photo, photo IDs that are needed to vote. And so this is going to have a disparate impact uh, voting rights supporters say on the African-American community, this closure of these offices. Well, Alabama Governor Robert Bentley is now trying to figure out a plan that would reopen these uh, 31 closed rural driver's license offices. The plan would involve getting a loan from the governor's emergency fund to pay for staffing uh, at these closed license offices, according to officials, uh, in return, of course, there's always something in return. Bentley wants rural and black lawmakers to support permanent funding when the legislature convenes next year, permanent funding for these offices. Government uh, sources now say, um, according to AL.com, that Bentley has not yet committed uh, finally to uh, a plan just yet but is floating this idea, is trying to find support for this idea, and is trying to get these offices reopened because, frankly, it looks terrible for Alabama, for the governor, Republican governor out there. Uh, you know, here's a solution. Just raise your goddamn taxes to pay for the services that the uh, citizens of Alabama would like, to pay for the things that you, you are providing to the citizenry. Is that too much to ask? In any event, Governor Bentley, he's a Republican. That's anathema. You know, raising taxes to pay for things is anathema to them. So instead, he's going to look to somehow get a loan. In any event, we may get those offices back open in Alabama, which means hopefully the citizenry will be able to vote again not actually, no, it doesn't mean they're going to be able to vote. It means they will be able to get driver's licenses to be able to vote. And actually, it doesn't even mean they'll get driver's licenses because in order to get those driver's license, you have to pay for a, uh, a passport or a birth certificate. So this is what we're going through just to get the right to be able to get a photo ID, just to be able to try to get one, just to be able to vote. All of this would have been avoided if the Voting Rights Act had stayed in place. And uh, yet it didn't. Thanks to the uh, right wing Supreme Court, a right wing Supreme Court, by the way, who is uh, in place, who has a majority. Thanks to John Kerry not fighting for his vote and for the right to vote back in 2004. But I digress when it comes to the Voting Rights Act and fixing the damage that the Supreme Court done. Back in 2013, uh, almost no Republicans in Congress, with the exception of James Sensenbrenner, want to do anything about it to fix it. And the reason James Sensenbrenner wants to fix the damage done to the Voting Rights Act by the Supreme Court is because James Sensenbrenner oversaw the reauthorization of the Voting Rights Act complete and full intact for 25 years during the Bush administration. This was after months and months of investigation, of hearings led by Sensenbrenner in the House, in the House Judiciary Committee. And he found that more than ever, 
the Voting Rights Act needed to stay in place. And not only did James Sensenbrenner feel that way, so did George W. Bush, who signed that reauthorization for 25 years, and so did every single Republican in the U.S. Senate. Back then, back in 2006, Republicans believed in voting rights, and almost all of them believed in it, by the way, in the U.S. House as well. It wasn't unanimous, but it was damn near. Well, that was 2006. This is now with Jeb Bush, former Florida governor Jeb Bush, who purged the voting rolls back in Florida of a whole bunch, tens of thousands of people to help out his brother, tens of thousands of people who should not have been uh, purged. Jeb Bush was asked by the Des Moines Register uh, if he would reauthorize the Voting Rights Act, if he would fix what was broken by the Supreme Court, would he fix the Voting Rights Act as passed in 1965? Do we still need it today? Here's what former Florida Governor Jeb Bush and brother to George Bush, who did reauthorize it, here's what Jeb had to say when he was asked about it uh, about a week or so ago. Where do you stand on the Voting Rights Act? Do you believe it should be reauthorized? If not, why not? Reauthorize, you said? Yes. Um, I think that the, if it's to reauthorize it to, to continue to provide uh, um, regulations on top of states as though we were living in 1960, because those were basically when many of those rules were put in place, uh -huh. I, I don't believe that we should do that. There's been dramatic improvement really? in, um, in uh, access to voting. Really? I mean, exponentially better improvement. Really? Is that and right? uh, I don't think there's a role for the federal government to play in most places. Mm -hmm. Could be some, but in most places where uh, they did have a constructive role in the 60s. So I don't I don't support reauthorizing it as is. OK, so in most places, uh, the federal government doesn't need to step in. Well, in most places, the federal government didn't step in. The Voting Rights Act specified uh, a number of jurisdictions with a long history of racial discrimination at the polls. Among them, of course, Alabama, the home of the Bloody Sunday March, where they beat the crap out of John Lewis as he was trying to uh, march from Selma to Montgomery to be able to register to vote. That same Alabama, where they have now shut down uh, driver's license offices after requiring, essentially, a driver's license to be able to vote. So for Jeb Bush to say, oh, no, everything's better. There's no role for the federal government. Uh, I guess what he's saying is that his brother, George W. Bush, was absolutely wrong when he reauthorized that act for 25 years. Remember, it used to only be reauthorized for five or seven years at a time. But after they did that months-long investigation in the U.S. House, after they gathered uh, tens of thousands of pages of, document, uh, of documentation, after they took testimony for dozens and dozens of hours, they found that, yes, we need the Voting Rights Act as it was passed in 1965 with the additional expanded jurisdictions that have been added to it since. And George W. Bush agreed. But Jeb Bush doesn't. He says, I don't believe we should uh, reauthorize the act as it currently is. I don't think there's a role for the federal government to play in most places. Well, I don't know about most places, but there's certainly a place in Alabama. There's certainly a place for it in Florida to try to keep folks like um, 
current Governor Rick Scott and former Governor Jeb Bush from purging the voting rolls, from taking away the most important right that we have in this country, the right that protects all other rights. But now, at this point, Jeb Bush will say anything, apparently will do anything to try to uh, get in the good stead of the far-right base of the Republican Party, which apparently uh, doesn't think it's important to protect voting rights. They used to. This used to be kind of a bipartisan thing. It was unanimous back in 2006 in the U.S. Senate. But that was 2006. And now uh, Jeb Bush throwing his brother under the bus along with the voters in this country and those of us conservatives who believe we ought to follow the Constitution when it comes to uh, protecting the right to vote. That does it for me today. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to our booking goddess, Cynthia Cohn, and to our guest, Congressman Ted Liu of California. We will be keeping our eye on that story and uh, the fight against ExxonMobil as things go. A lot of fights to keep our eyes on. We hope you will keep an eye on us here at the Bradcast. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can download it at any time at bradblog.com. This or any other show we have ever played, you can download it in full for free at bradblog.com. You can also sign up uh, over at iTunes and get the shows automatically sent to your uh, favorite uh, device, mobile or otherwise. While you're there, please give us a good review. It makes it easier for other folks to find us. Drop us email. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. If you agree, disagree, either way, I'm happy to hear from you. Uh, and, of course, find us and follow us on the Twitters and the Facebooks at the Brad Blog. We'll see you over there. Until next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.